Hi, this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and podcast number 23. Uh, and with me, this is kind of very cool, I think, is Ed Curtin, author, who has a new book out, in fact, which we'll talk about a little bit. And Ed, where are you? You're on the East Coast somewhere, yeah? Yes, John, I'm in Western Massachusetts, in the Berkshire Hills. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, well, I'm glad we could uh, coordinate this and, and get it together. And I will just say before I forget, um, because I wrote a review of Ed's book, um, which it can be found over Off Guardian. Uh, and it's a terrific book, and everybody should buy it. Um, and, and I rarely say that about things, but I, but I mean it in this case. Um, Searching for truth in a in a country of lies. Um, uh, it's a it's a terrific book and uh, a collection of essays, and uh, it's available at you know, Amazon or other nefarious sites that uh, one one can find. Um, but uh, it's, it's a terrific. Anyway, so we can talk um, kind of about whatever we feel like here, and I I guess one obvious beginning because we're we're sitting here in the shadow of covid um and and it's a never-ending source of amazement to me i think but how is life in massachusetts with um with all of this well it's uh weird john uh as it is uh, many other places where i live uh it's 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 a pretty rural area. Uh, actually, a lot of ex-New Yorkers have moved here. Uh, it's kind of like a little New York City in the country, about 130, 40 miles from New York City, okay. north northeast. And most of the people here uh, have totally bought into the uh, the fake story of this coronavirus or COVID-19 or whatever we want to call it. There was a, <clears throat> a demonstration here probably about a month ago. This will give you a bit of an idea. And <clears throat> it was uh, down at Town Hall, which is, is down the hill from, from where we live. And uh, my wife wanted to go into to a, a market there to buy some, some stuff at a cooperative market. And we walked down and there were thousands of people at this uh, Black Lives Matter demonstration out in front of town hall, probably uh, 3000 people uh, shoulder to shoulder uh, and every single person except one or two that I saw had on a mask and I was the I was the only person that I I mean I was there. We listened to a lot of the talk, and I had no mask on. And I thought, my God, this is it. So that's yeah. about what it's what it's like here. Um, you know, it's interesting. I I I hear those kind of stories from people in the U.S. and. Um, it's not as bad here in Norway. I mean, it's, 
Norway is bad in a sense. I mean, it's had a lockdown and had a five week lockdown. Schools were shut for five weeks and so forth. Um, but masks have, have not become a thing, probably because Norway is just so sparsely populated that, that it's ridiculous. But, um, but, but people still kind of practice social distancing. And now they have, they have, and you can't drive to Sweden you see, which is like a hundred kilometers from where I am. And, and I mean, Sweden is a hundred kilometers from everywhere, but anyway, um, uh, but I buy my tobacco in Sweden. So I find it very irritating. And, um, and, and I, there was, they've, they're ramping up the rhetoric about a, a second wave, right? There's, there's no evidence of this or anything, except they keep testing like crazy to, to make sure there's enough positive test results to justify things. But, but I read a thing in the paper today, and I had a very curious reaction to it. Um, the minister of um, something in the Norwegian government, um, it may have actually just been like the minister of health, but I don't think it was that. But anyway, part of the, part of the party, the ruling party, it's always a coalition, it's parliamentary here. He said, I strongly advise everyone to not travel anywhere this year and i thought that's astonishing that's an astonishing thing to say when did that happen that that the government tells you you can't leave the country and everything has happened behind closed doors there's no public debate there's no no sort of vote or representational vote or anything just these things are are issued and um, and nobody seems particularly upset by it. But that's that's my first point. The second point, which I want you to respond to, is on the other hand, I talk to a lot of people here. I talk to a lot of people in the United States all the time, and I think there's an enormous amount of bad faith going on in all of this. People wear their masks. They virtue signal. They utter the appropriate uh, concern, and um, you know they follow the rules. And I think a lot, a lot, a lot of people don't believe it, but they, they don't have the vocabulary, they don't have the political maturity or consciousness um, to resist it in some way. It, it, it's as though that that kind of political resistance has has withered away a bit in, in Western society, or at least in the United States. I don't know. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And it's ironic that you uh, <clears throat> uh, mention a bad faith, because uh, earlier today I was uh, typing out a, a little article uh, with the title, uh, Liars, Lying, and Bad Faith. <laughs> uh, here we go. We're on the same yeah, page again. I, I have to just insert very quickly. Ed and I became friends um, on the internet um, because we appreciated each other's writing and it was a sort of mutual admiration society, but mostly because there was an uncanny, uncanny synchronicity to um, the stuff we wrote. We wrote the same thing, unknown to each other, like every single every single week every single month it, it continues to be uncanny anyway close parentheses there please continue 
Yes, uh, well, the, the, the reason that I was uh, am writing this article is I, I had read three or four pieces on various subjects, one, two of them on the Assange trial, uh, one on the Democratic Party's uh, efforts to promote Russiagate, et cetera, and uh, continuing to do so, and, uh, and another article that I don't remember clearly. But in all these articles, the authors were referring to this issue of, of bad faith and lying. They didn't use the term bad faith. But uh, for example, and I understand this, uh, in one article, the Russian uh, foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, uh, was uh, responding to this tremendously harmful bill that U.S. senators have introduced to, of course, excoriate Russia again. And it's just filled with bullshit and lies. And he, he made the comment, he said, I don't know if they're doing this wittingly or unwittingly. And of course, he's a diplomat, so that's diplomatese, right? right. Uh, he, he, he knows that they're lying and they know they're lying. And this issue came up in all of these articles. People were talking about lying and I'm firmly convinced that what you said about people in masks is probably true as well. Uh, they're living in bad faith and they, they know that the masks are probably useless and yet they're donning them Right. in this some kind of bow to authorities it's 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 bizarre it is bizarre and i mean I, I i can't remember you know you you have written a number of times recently about this sense of unreality you know in the world and 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 i remember the last interview that edward said gave um for the bbc or somebody um they asked him you know, he was dying. He was very sick, and and they asked him what what kind of parting observation he what he felt at, about the world, and he said, "I feel at this overwhelming sense of unreality." And I thought, boy, you know, if he were alive today, uh, because it's it's quadrupled. It's 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 extraordinary. I I just I read these things. And I think it can't, I can't possibly be true. You know, um, wear a mask during sex. Don't have uh, sex unless it's, you know, with your regular partner or something. And, and I'm thinking, I hope there's bad faith involved in that because um, uh, it's, it's unnerving that this stuff is, is being presented as, as in any way sort of scientific or rational. Um, cause it's, cause it's just, it's just rapidly insane at this point. Um, yeah, it sure and, is. Uh, I sort of wanted to sort of segue back here a tiny bit because I was actually on press TV today and, and speaking of, you know, diplomatic speak, I mean, there's certain things I can't really say on there. I mean, I can't talk the way I'm talking right now with you. Um, I have to be very careful about the COVID thing because people are terrified. Uh, Press TV is terrified. I appeared on Sputnik radio the other day. They're terrified. 
they're all great people, but they're terrified of being called conspiracy theorists, right? And and so you have to kind of tiptoe around it. They were talking about the coming election and what did I think? And I said, well, you know, will Trump give up power? I said, that's really a, a kind of distraction at this point. I mean, of course he will at, if he has to, but, but the issue is that a massive depression that the United States is sinking into because of, because of this lockdown and the jobs lost and the businesses lost and the homes lost, people's livelihoods destroyed. Um, and the sense of desperation that, that even from you know, 5,000 miles away, I sense acutely that, that, that blankets the country. And, and yet that's not the picture you get in media at all. I mean, the media doesn't cover the protests, the ones in Trafalgar Square today. Um, for example, so uh, it's it's that unreality is is deeply connected with this, and this will bring us probably to a more of a discussion of culture, I think. But um, you know, it's I I don't know. You're there, and I'm not. So you know, give me your impressions, perhaps. Well, I it it is a feeling of unreality and. I've written about this. It, it's like you walk around and it seems as if you're seeing ghosts or you, you're seeing this look on people's faces that they're victims of, of trauma. Uh, they, they, they are, as you wrote in something recently, they, they have these kind of disassociative looks on their face as if they're there, but they're not there. And it's, 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 it's hard to describe when just talking about it. I'm better at writing about it. And, you know, your, your article uh, about becoming a, a real boy really yeah. got to that. I thought it was quite a brilliant uh, two-part article. Well, uh, you know, yes, that, please, go on. No, that... that, that feeling is um, that the sense of trauma that, that people experience. I mean, I think that's real. I think somebody had an ex coined a term the other day, um, compliance fetishism. And I thought, oh, well, that's very good. You know, I've written it as a culture of consensus, but, but, but that's what we're seeing. It is this compliance and it's fetishized. But I think there's two camps. I think there's the bad faith camp people that, that know it's bogus and yet they don't want to get into trouble. They follow the rules and I understand that to some degree, sure. And then I think there's people that, as I wrote about in that article, are sort of the moral narcissists, you know, the ones that um, want to check how close people are standing next to each other. And, and I can't help but it reminds me the, the sort of the feeling I get is very similar to um, in the 80s when the recovered memory debacle was underway, um, like the McMartin preschool trial. Yeah, um, yeah. There yeah. was that same, those same moralizing voices were driving so much of that. And those people are dangerous, I think. Yeah, there was a woman a while back I, I went into, we, we have a local farmer's market 
and I had to get something there. And of course, it's quite restricted now. And I was waiting online to get some blueberries. And a woman uh, said to me, move away from me. You're not six feet away. <laughs> and, and, and it didn't occur to me at that, that moment. But afterwards, I, I did say to her, I, I think I'm three feet, two inches away or some sarcastic response. But I should have said to her, lady, no one would like to get too close to you. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I, but see, it, I wrote on, on social media the other day, I, I played in a chess tournament and there were a lot of young players, youth chess. There's a lot of strong young players in Norway because of Magnus Carlsen and everything. Anyway, these kids were like eight, nine, ten years old. And my first game was against this kid who was like nine. And um, I sat down and I reached over to shake his hand and he looked horrified. And <laughs> the guy came running over and goes, no, we don't shake hands anymore because of, you know, COVID and everything. Yeah. Said, right. Okay. So we use hand sanitizer, but that's just what? I mean, okay. You know, and it's all this it's all kabuki you know it's it's crazy after the match and he beat me the nine-year-old beat me but anyway um we we had to spray all the chest pieces with sanitizer i mean it was just absurd you know it's just yeah. absurd the whole thing is an absurdity so meanwhile you know i read where where you know one in three um u.s museums since they've all been closed one in three will never reopen and then I see articles about a lot of museums selling off very expensive classic works. Um, mm. And I think, you know, this is, this is, this is, the U.S. started destroying culture with Iraq, with Baghdad. They continued with Libya and Syria. And they're doing it to themselves now, feels like. I don't know. Yeah, well, because the people uh, buying this stuff, the people buying this stuff will be billionaires, right? Not you and me, and we won't get to see it. So, anyway, go on. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah, a few years ago, there was an exhibit here. There's a museum in Williamstown, Massachusetts, called the Clock Museum, and they had an exhibit of Vincent Van Gogh's uh, uh, paintings, in particular his his nature paintings, his pictures of the natural world. And all of the paintings were uh, hung in, in gold gilt frames. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, my God, uh, how dumb are these people? Uh, Van Gogh in gold? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but getting back to your point about closings, uh, yeah, I mean, most, if most of the little restaurants in this town will close, they won't make it. Uh, and when the cold weather comes, and this is, you know, in a northern clime uh, and snow and cold, uh, they won't have outdoor dining and they just, they just won't make it. And it's devastating to small businesses and regular people here in the States.
it, it's a destruction of the American economy yeah. for the rich, as usual, and it's not an accident. It sure as hell is not an accident. Yeah, I agree. Um, it is, as one friend of mine said, he said, it's just retail apocalypse. Um, yeah. And, and it is. I mean, it, it, no small restaurant, no small nightclub, no small whatever business of any sort, with very few exceptions, is going to survive. And there's all these businesses like, like you know, massage therapists. Well, they're out of business. They're out of business forever now, you know, because we can't touch each other. Yeah. And um, the disturbing thing, I think, is um what what's being penciled in because yeah it, it's hard to think this isn't being driven by you know very rich one percent you know billionaires with a certain kind of agenda because they're artificially prolonging this lockdown this isn't i mean you know there was a, a article today about um something like 1300 belgian uh, medical professionals doctors nurses and Senator signed a letter saying this is just an absurdity, saying everything we're saying, right? Saying it's also yeah. been conducted in an anti-democratic way. And before that, there were a thousand German doctors that signed a thing and made statements and you know, posted videos explaining why they thought the lockdowns were going to kill far more people than the virus ever would. So here you, you have all of these small businesses being wiped out and, and the culture of the United States is being wiped out with it somehow. Um, and and everything is being funneled into, you know, online teaching, and, um, you know, will it be able to do this by, you know, working at home? And I'm thinking, what sort of society do these people imagine? I mean, a society of absolutely isolated, um, virtually imprisoned individuals. I don't know. I don't know what they imagine, you know, and I don't know what the people who are fetishizing this stuff, the, the compliance fetishizers, I, I don't know what they imagine the outcome is. Do they really think everything will return to normal because it's not going to? You know? No, it's not. It's not, and they're pushing more and more for on, online living, if you can call it living. I know we're doing this uh, through the air, so to speak, from <laughs> yeah. Norway, uh, which is, of course, ironic. Uh, I was having a coffee a few weeks ago with my niece's boyfriend, and uh, he's a very accomplished, he's he's in his 50s, and, he's, uh, and, and she's younger, but... Uh, he, he's a very accomplished uh, pianist who does a lot of Broadway shows, accompanies a, a lot of famous uh, singers on the piano, and, you know, he's had a really outstanding career. And he was telling me, there's nothing now. It's all gone. It's all dried up. He has no gigs. He has no work. Uh, Broadway's basically closed down. Uh, they're destroying, uh, uh, not that Broadway is, is filled with profoundly no, but, good. Yeah, but, but no, but, but that's what I hear. I hear the very same thing, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, the Met Theater is closed, maybe not to reopen, um, the Metropolitan Opera, I mean. 
Um, yeah. That's funny. That was yeah. a yeah. Freudian slip. The Met Theater was an old theater in Los Angeles that I worked at. The Metropolitan Opera is what I meant. Anyway, um, you know, and and uh, this is this is what I don't fully understand. You see, I mean, um, I I listen to people like Bill Gates speak. You know, who's just a ghoul. I mean, he's really a ghoul, and and um, and a sociopath. I'm absolutely absolutely convinced that he's really a disturbed and and scaring man but um, i agree when i hear he, yeah when i hear him speak and i'm thinking but what is it that he really wants see i never have understood what the what the very rich want if you can buy anything you want you can have private chefs you can buy whatever sex you want you can buy you know expensive clothes and watches and cars and private airplanes you know, you exert power pretty much at will. What else do you want? Why do you want more? You know, this is a mystery. Yeah. I've always pondered that myself and, and have, have written about it. I think that there's so uh, people like Gates and, and, and many others, not the majority of regular people, but they're, 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 they're nihilists. And they they believe in nothing, and uh, there's there's some blackness in their souls, and it doesn't matter how much money they have, how much sex, how many things, they want more and more and more and more because I think they're in love with death. There's something deadly about them, you know. Lawrence called them the living dead. Well, it it. it... There is, there is, and I think it's, I think, I think that's what on a, on a kind of subconscious level, so sort of that, that, that's, that's the response. I mean, I feel this revulsion in the face of a lot of this, and I hear these descriptions of technology, and boy, that's a complicated discussion, but, um, and, and I think, First of all, I don't believe this stuff works, but put that aside for a second. Um, the, the technological future that these people describe, people like Elon Musk and stuff, seems horrifying to me. It doesn't seem attractive at all. Um, it seems sterile and, and, and hermetically sealed off from one's emotions and, and the life of other people's emotions the world, nature, everything. It's a, it's a strange, sterile, denuded landscape, um, uh, both literal and, and metaphorical that, that, that is being presented. But I've, I've been on this, this something of a jag lately in my writing because, um, maybe because I keep reading, I'm constantly being bombarded with Articles about artificial intelligence and you know all the great advances being made, and I'm thinking, well, I don't know. Every time I try to buy something online, it's a fuck up. So so far, the technology <laughs> not impressing me very much. You know, um, I can't get the Department of Motor Vehicles in California to give me the right license. You know, um, so so why is there this strange faith? In, in technology and especially this this dream that that our brain is a, like a computer because I mean it's not 
you know, I mean, and, and you've commented about this, I know, but it's, but it's a strange seductive fantasy. And I think what you just touched on is right. It's a, it's a nihilistic fantasy somehow. Yeah, I, I think so. And at the bottom of it, you, I know you've mentioned him and I have too. And I, when I used to teach, I, I taught his, his book, uh, Ernest Becker, uh, yeah. uh, wrote the uh, denial of death, which is a, quite an astute uh, analysis of of this people's refusal to 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 face death and the need to deny it, and how that ties into the whole cultural scene, the the people's lives, the political scene. And it seems to be so widespread that because the fear of death is tied into the, uh, the you know, the last two, well, 200, I don't know if it's 200, 150, 175 years of, of, of Western European history uh, and the death of God phenomenon. Uh, but Nietzsche, of, co of course, said that people killed God. Uh, uh, and so I think that the, the, the denial of death is, 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 is right there. You know, I wrote that little satiric piece a while back, well, in February or March, about toilet paper. And I think it was uh, right. the reason. I remember that. Yeah, it, it, you know, I mean, there it is, right? Toilet yeah. paper, the anus, feces, death. Uh, let's run and keep ourselves clean. And so what are they running from? They're running from this, 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 what I think is a lack of, a lack of faith in life itself. Not well, to say religious faith, but e even, you know, both, in both. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that, that um, you know, this is where I, I, I sort of always like to just put a little Wilhelm Reich footnote in things, um, because for all his eventual madness and and deterioration, and you know the poor guy was hunted and um, yeah under assault in every direction for so many years, but but his best writing during his most lucid period um, is still really extraordinary and. And that, that sense of character armoring that he talks about. Yeah, yeah. Is, is really astute. And, and it, it, it's hard not to link it up today with, um, with the, the addiction to screen, the, the, the intervention of um, the internet and you know every aspect of our lives and and mine too I mean my god I'm on the internet all the time I live in Norway I live in a remote corner of Norway my connection to you know to the world and politics and everything else is is via the internet <laughs> but I yeah. know the effect it has I mean I know I'm not unaware that it affects me um, right I, I try to consciously you know um, mitigate the harm, but I know if I am. But but my point is that that what Reich talked about that that kind of character armor and repression, 
um, the, the sexual repression, the sex negativity, um, and COVID is nothing if not an expression of, of this sex negativity. I mean, it, there's another great book, um, Male Fantasies, um, Fiewelite, or Fiewelite, um, that, that about the German Freed Corps and, and um, the you know, fascists and, and their fear of women, their fear of sexuality, and their terror of dirt to cleanse and sterilize everything. And we're seeing a lot of that with COVID. You know, I mean, people are becoming germophobic and hysterical. And um, while there's bad faith, you know, it's a complicated. I said to somebody the other day, yes, bad faith, you're right. But I, but I think it's probably a new kind of bad faith. <laughs> and I'm not even sure what I meant. Yeah, I, I, I think I might have mentioned to you uh, in an email that, you know, I used, I do a lot of walking and I go in the woods and by the lake and the river and all around. And you used to uh, find condoms everywhere. <laughs> and now you, now you find masks. Wow. Discarded masks. And, and, and these masks are very much like, uh, uh, Character armor uh, yes, that, uh, that that Reich wrote about, and that Ernest Becker, of course, picks up on. And it's this 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 uptightness, this fear. You, you, people walk funny. They they talk funny. They look away, and you say, "What the hell's wrong with this person?" Yeah, and they're just so uptight. <laughs> I remember. I remember when when Fauci, who no. by the way went went to the same high school I did. <laughs> wow. Yeah, a, a Jesuit high school, Jesuit priest in in New York City in Manhattan. Uh, same high school. He's older than I am, but uh, my friends will think he's uh, a saint. Yeah. In any case, I, I remember when Fauci said, you know, I hope we never shake hands again. Yeah. Now that's like a that's a psychopathic statement. Yeah. You know, yeah. But, yeah. never shake hands again. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, but this is it. This is it is psychopathic. I mean, this is why I, I pinch myself during the day. I think I things cannot be as 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 insane as I am finding them. But then you hear statements like that and you think, well, yeah, apparently they are. No, Fauci's an evil little fuck, boy. He's he's a bad man. Um, and, uh, you know, but kind of like maybe the culture a little bit. I, um, that, that sense of, um, of uh, the, the, the sort of the American culture being destroyed and you know, museums closing, the Metropolitan Opera closing, all theaters everywhere closing, and um, uh, people going out of business. It's affected Hollywood hugely, not that Hollywood might really even be culture, but, but, um, but you know the new restrictions on how you can film things. Um, you know there has to be distance and, and all sorts of preparations materials and so forth. Um, what the what the end result of that is? 
um, I don't know. I mean, what are we really going to be looking at a world in which people never shake hands again? Um, are they are are they imagining that we will never shake hands um, for ten years? What is what is the picture, the picture being drawn? Um, I I don't know, but um, but I think that that I'm and I'm going to kind of jump around here. I'm free associating a little bit, so forgive me. But, but no, no, don't no, no. That's that's good. That's what I want. <laughs> I read an article about <laughs> Wittgenstein the other day. And yeah. uh, was was just sort of not a not a serious philosophical essay, but but very informative and, and interesting. And it was about Wittgenstein's love of um, pulp fiction, detective novels, yeah. and movies, westerns. He loved westerns and he loved detective fiction, but especially Private Eye detective stuff. Black Mask and all of those magazines at the time. And um, he talks about it, conversations of his have been, have been um, uh, related, friends relate, oh, I had this conversation with him about this. He talked about, about how much he enjoyed detective fiction all the time. And he liked he had several different friends. I think one was Ray Monk that he would go to the movies with. He liked to sit in the front row. And, um, and he would talk about that he found the experience like mentally cleansing. And, um, and I find that really interesting um, because, because I think I understand what, I think I understand what he's talking about. And um, I, I often watch just anything. I just turn on stuff, and if it's if it's a crime show or a, or you know anything, I watch it because, and I drift off. It's like it's like a strange meditation almost. I don't even remember what I've watched half the time, but I if there has to be a story, and this goes back to like Walter Benjamin's essay on on the last storyteller. I think was the title, yeah. but but um. And, and the importance of narration, because I think what Wittgenstein was getting at was um, that, that there was something in um, just the, the experience of a story, regardless of what the story was or anything else, just the kind of a structural, um, the sort of sensual or, or cognitive, both, I guess, absorption of, of story, of narration is, was, was acutely important to him on an on a almost spiritual level, of, certainly on a deeply philosophical level, that he thought we could explain a lot by understanding this this very uncanny and ephemeral and, and elusive idea or feeling of, of what a story was. And um, in some sense, I think he felt he wanted stuff that wasn't demanding. The interesting footnote to this, and then we'll come back to it, but the interesting footnote is he wrote to a friend in the United States, this is during the war, right? and said, if you can find it, I, I read a story by a guy that I really like, Norbert Davis, I think his name, I forget actually the name, something like that. 
And he wasn't very well known. He said, but if you can find anything else by this guy, please send it to me. And I would love to be able to write him a letter and tell him how much I loved his, his short stories. So um, his letter of appreciation never got sent because the war interceded and the, the mail was, was un, you know, <clears throat> unsteady and uncertain. And um, uh, this author, as it turned out at the time, was being rejected all over. He couldn't get work in Hollywood. He finally had to borrow money from Raymond Chandler, in fact, and then committed suicide. And there's, I, there's something in me that says that, that, that Wittgenstein didn't pick this guy by accident, you know? That yeah, yeah. Some deep, like, um, you know, impossible to register level, some, um, you know, pre-rational, pre pre-something level. Um, he was picking up on something in, in, in this particular writer's story that was an expression of, of suffering. You know, this is Adorno talks about the transcription of suffering, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, I find this very interesting because I, I, I wish I could articulate it better. And I was just thinking of this the other day and today and stuff, so I haven't formulated my thoughts, but there is something in this need that people don't even realize they have for, um, a, I think, what is the mystery that exists in stories. I often watch shows and I don't watch the final episode once the mystery solved because I don't care about the resolution. I was only interested. <laughs> I'm serious in the experience of the mystery. I, it's like that, I wanted that experience, that strange not knowing. I don't know how else to explain it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I've, <clears throat> you may know this or not. <clears throat> I've been obsessed with that issue uh, for my whole life. And uh, I've been, uh, recently I wrote something in, in which I, I wrote, this is uh, neither an article nor a story. I don't know what it is, uh, but I, I think that what you're talking about is, is one of the fundamental issues that we need to confront and try to solve. I, I like you, I, I feel it is crucial and yet I'm not sure exactly how to do it. I've, I've often felt that uh, in political writing has a limited a force behind it and that any, pol any political writing needs to also be work of art and by work of art, I mean, really a story uh, mm -hmm. that uh, this is what people hunger for. This is what we live. This is theater. Uh, this is, is literature from the beginning of time. We're storytellers. And the thing I love about John Berger is that uh, he became more and more a storyteller over the course of his life. And yes, he wrote novels, but even his essays are stories. And I think that that's what, you know, I noticed that 
like my daughter and my wife, they read mostly fiction. And uh, what are they looking for in, in these novels? Uh, I haven't really asked them, but I suspect it's this hunger for real life, this hunger for the, the mystery that is at the heart of our existence. And they, they tend to shy away from political analysis and that kind of thing. And they're both very, very uh, intelligent women uh, who, who, by the way, are both are teachers and both are being, my wife's an English teacher, my daughter's a reading teacher, and they're being forced into this absurd online life in the schools that is just driving, uh -huh. the, driving them literally mad. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, but you, you're touching on something really, really important. And, it, you know, you know this from your theater work. It's hard to, to put into words. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, because I, this just came to me a couple, you know, I, you and I have both written about things that are sort of related to this. But, um, and, and I've written about the importance of, of narration that, the mimetic experiences, you know, connected to narration on some level, and um, that 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 theater exists in this sort of primal space, this very magical ceremonial space that is the empty stage, that is really the sort of the the projection of of. The, the scene of trauma in our minds, I think. And that, that's, that's what we are working out. That's what we are go, repeating. You know, repetition is this other extraordinarily important kind of philosophical concept, but there are different types of repetition. And, and I think that we get further away from that, from that, experience that one has in theater when it's working, when we get to film, we get to television, we get to the internet and people stream things on their computers now and so forth. And, yeah. and everything's fragmented. I mean, my experience of everything is much more fragmented than it was 30 years ago. But um, I think that the, uh, this is part of my problem when I, when I contemplate this stuff, because I think it's, it's absolutely profoundly important too. The idea that people are able to recognize a story and digest a story and repeat back the story um, and talk about the story with other people. Um, all of that is has deteriorated. Those skills have eroded um, dramatically over the last 10 or 15 years, maybe even longer than that. But um, I think that uh, one, of, one of the things that, that is happening now is with all of this online teaching, when, you know, this belief, half-hearted belief at best um, that, that a lot of people have in, in um, you know, distant learning and doing things via screens and so forth. Um, it is it is kind of the final killing off of 
of something that began in Neanderthal caves, you know, um, that, that, that this was the, the first, those paintings, those in all the caves all over the world, they keep discovering more of them and they keep discovering older ones, um, you know, 30,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago. What's remarkable, and, and because we have a connection to that, that, that but it, that, that connection is finally being ended now technology in the hands of the ruling class um, and sociopaths like Gates and, and whoever else. That's, that's finally that connection. One of the interesting things about those caves and the cave art and the small communities of early man um, is how long they existed unchanged. You know, those cave paintings in um, the, the famous one in, in France and the name escapes me now. Um, yeah. Those paintings, they painted on paintings and painted on paintings on the top of that um, for like 5,000 years. There were people painting in those caves for a period of 5,000 years. Um, well, nothing much had changed apparently because they kept coming to the same cave and painting. Um, that's remarkable. Um, that 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 those early um, humans in those caves that somehow recorded something of their existence with those cave paintings, um, those communities, the world was so small and dark and frightening, and they they were doing that for something like five thousand years. Um, think about that you know that's really remarkable that nothing changed yeah. now things have accelerated there is this you know i mean you talked about it in your book um and and i talked about that chapter in fact in my review because um about about this artificial hurriedness speed um in this demand that everything be accelerated. And of course, Jonathan Crary's book, 24 seven is on a similar topic is very good. Um, yeah. But, but um, and I think this is, is absolutely true. There's something, and I think it's driving people mad. I think it makes you crazy. Um, uh, one of the things is, is I've been in Norway now off and on for 14 years. Um, I was back in the States for a year and a half and you know, I'd come before that in Paris before that blah 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 but now I've been in rural Norway off and on for a decade say and I'm just now um, settling in to the pace of life here which is very slow um, and and I really like it now that I've adjusted a bit and um, I I could do with shorter winters, but um, but but the the slowness um, and and the the sort of that you don't feel a pressure, people don't feel a pressure, the community doesn't feel a pressure to change, to do things just for the sake of doing them for for no reason, and this is why it's disturbing. Um, when I see the government here issuing these COVID edicts and um, 
I think, yeah, you know, you're listening to the World Health Organization and the CDC, and these are politicized agencies. These, these are not neutral scientific bodies. They're absolutely politicized, and, and they're profiteering as well. So anyway, I don't know where I'm going with all that. Your turn. You, can, <laughs> you talk for a while. Well, going back to the, the issue of um, art in these days, my granddaughter, who is uh, 12, uh, and, and, and this is where I see uh, great, great hope and, and, uh, and light. She just, uh, and, but it's, it's ironic at the same time, she just did a, a ballet outdoors. Uh, it, it's, it's a COVID ballet. And 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 she had a mask on, and she choreographed her whole uh, uh, dances. And uh, it's a group of young girls, all about the same age, but it was really exquisitely beautiful. I I must say her performance was especially. It, it was it was just really striking, and. She was creating at the age of 12, beauty in the midst of this craziness. Mm. And that kind of stuff is, is just so important uh, yeah. for us all. But I think that's what I come away with and maybe what I was getting at. And I think it's what I was thinking about today. It, it, there's a hostility if, if certainly an indifference, if not a hostility to art and culture in American society, there always has been. Um, but now that we're really seeing the end of, like I say, the connection to those first cave drawings, we're seeing an end of the connection to Greek tragedy, to, to, to everything. Um, uh, and, and we see it all over the world. Um, the, the traditional Indian dance is disappearing. Um, you know, no theater in Japan is just a tourist attraction now. Um, the, there's nothing replacing that. We have no organic expression of the sort of post most modern advanced capitalism. There is no real expression, no form, no medium. And at the same time, everything's being killed off as well. And, and so we're, we're really in a, a nihilistic kind of cul-de-sac here. Um, and that stuff is being lost. And I think it's, it's frightening. I mean, I think it's why I feel depressed at times. I think what, I don't know what this world that emerges out of this stuff, even if people resist right now, and they're starting to, even if people were saying no more of this bullshit, stop. Um, you know, uh, I'm not wearing your fucking mask anymore and I'm going to drive where I want. Uh, even if they, everybody did that today, there's still been an enormous amount of damage done and we're still culturally in a place of, um, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, stilted, uh, paralyzed, constipated, um, uh, impaction. I don't know. I don't know how to express it, but there's something deeply wrong that 
that we're all feeling because of this lynching of art. Yeah, yeah, I I agree, and I I I find hope in in little places, and the same granddaughter that I'm was just talking about with the ballet, she just uh, sent my my wife a, a birthday present. She said, I'm giving you a sneak peek at my a new story. And her, her, her sneak peek were the four, first 47 pages of a story that she's writing, mm -hmm. uh, and which had to be printed out of her notebook. And here's a girl who's written five plays already, five plays. Uh, and she and her brother both, they, they rarely ever were on a computer before this fall when the schools fostered on them, rarely ever, and just read voluminously, read, record, yeah. write, and so forth. My grandson, uh, I, I know I'm, I'm talking about uh, personal things, but yeah, I think I, I think this is important. Uh, last year I took him, he had a, a, a night soccer practice, what they call soccer here, football in the rest of the world. And we, we would, he had previously the day before given me a, a couple of his poems that he was writing. And he's a painter also. And he's, he's painting all the time, writing poetry. And we had this conversation in the car, just he and, he and me. He was sitting in the back seat. It had already gotten dark. We were driving from the soccer facility back to his house where I was staying, uh, helping my daughter because her husband was away and, you know, I was with the kids. And, and he said to me, uh, Poppy, he said, where do you think poetry comes from? <laughs> and I said, well, Henry, I think it comes from a very deep spiritual place. Uh, it comes from inspiration. And as all great art does. And he said to me, well, you know, I feel like when I'm writing poetry, it's like the Holy Spirit in me. And I, we, we continued then to talk about his soccer yeah. and, and the flow of, of playing in the game, the flow, the joy, and, and where the creativity in sports comes from. Mm -hmm. In basketball, in, in his sport is, is soccer. And we had this extraordinary 15-minute conversation. And I think he was able to really talk about it because... It was just the two of us. He was in the back seat. He could talk to the back of my head, so to speak, and I could talk back to him. And hey, it just, that's, you know, it, it's just like it inspires me. Well, I, but it is cr critically important, those things. I mean, I, 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 with my first son, who's, you know, now 40 years old, but, um, I remember, and I've told this story before, but but he had read um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in school, and he was talking about it, and then he saw the film, 
talked about it. And then like a month later, he, we were driving somewhere and he resumed this discussion of, of the film um, after this three week break. He had been thinking about it. Yeah, and, yeah. And he returned to it. And I, at the time I thought this is a good part of what art does. Certainly for young people, this is what art and culture does is it develops interiority somehow. In, inner life is developed because what else develops it? And if you don't have that, if, if that structure, what I think Wittgenstein was, was grasping at when he, when he talked about detective fiction, um, if you don't have that, whatever that is, that somehow I think humans need, um, you're going to get lives uh, in which in which there is no inner life, in which the interior is 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 locked up, shut down, and it's a society of extraordinarily superficial people, um, you know, with with pathological tendencies, certainly narcissistic tendencies, and that's kind of where we're at, um, hugely fragmented, and you know, sex negative slightly um, hysterical about um, their bodies and other bodies, germ phobic, and just very, very shallow. Um, that, that's my sense. And you know, I, when I taught at the film school in different places, you always can spot the good student. You know, you get like one a year. Um, yeah, yeah. Two, if you're really lucky. And you recognize them the first day. You just go, oh, that's, that's gonna be my good student. Um, because they're human beings, you know, they're alive. And um, you look around the room and most everybody else is not. And um, that's that, and I think this is, you know, this circles back to your description of the faces of the traumatized ghosts of the COVID lockdown, you know. Um, and, but I'm really glad that people are resisting. I mean, there is enormous backlash against it. So, so maybe something good will, will come out of that backlash. I don't know, but um, the society is, is uh, I mean, look at, look at the political landscape, I mean, you know, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, you know, there we are. <laughs> and you know, the other thing, let me just add this and then I want you to talk about it a little. Um, you know, Trump makes this, Supreme Court nominee nominates this woman for the Supreme Court who was clerk to Scalia um, and who's a rabid right-wing nutter, but she belongs to a, 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 a society, a sort of sect that is fundamentalist Catholic, but with, but with heavy Pentecostal influence. That's how it was described to me. Um, meaning that they they believe in talking in tongues, they believe in prophecy and divine intervention and all these things, much like Mike Pompeo and all the Dominionists and so forth. That's very interesting, you know. This is very interesting the way in which the religious right and these fundamentalist um, nutcases um, have found themselves in positions of enormous influence. It's uh, distressing to say the least. Yeah, well, I, I agree. And it's funny because, not funny, but historically, uh, for a good while, 
in the in the Catholic Church, there was uh, something that well, which still exists, of course, uh, called liberation theology. Right. And you know, this whole the, the the Catholic background is my background. I'm I'm trained in in theology as well as sociology and literature, and you know, a lot of stuff in the classics, but. Uh, uh, the liberation theology is is seemingly unknown these days to to North Americans or people in the United States, but for years it was it's it's been a fundamental substructure of rebellion against oppression throughout Latin America, especially. Right. Uh, and and I think that the rise of this very conservative uh, mindset within the, the Catholic Church is is kind of like a re- is a reaction to the rise of liberation theology and and radical left wing uh, religious leaders like m- my old friend uh, Daniel Berrigan and and people like him. And I think it's just this part of the the movement that started primarily under Reagan, I guess, right. to move move everything to the right. And this is where we're at. I mean, it's just been a progression. Right. You know, it's um, it's interesting the the because you think about um, you know what John Paul did as Pope you know, deep connections to the CIA. He beatified that Croatian fascist who was, you know, had the priest at the death camp. Um, yeah, right. yeah. Um, Stepanovich, is that his name? Anyway, uh, and and the, the Catholic Church and its connection, you know, this one wing of the church and its connection to fascism, to all the royal families, the fascist families in Europe, across Europe. And I think one of, one of the things that Americans at least do not grasp, and when you start getting called conspiracy theorists and stuff, is you say, yeah, but see, you don't know because you don't read history. Um, you don't understand the connections. You don't understand the role um, that, that the Catholic church played uh, with fascism in Europe. You don't understand the US and you know the rat lines and and you know the rehabilitation of open Nazis um, after the war. Um, and the fact that that Hitler was basing much of the exterminationist policies of, of Germany at that time on uh, the eugenics programs he found in California, North Carolina, um, and across the U.S., uh, you know, the forced sterilizations and, and um, the, you know, you, which resurfaces these days in the depopulation people in Gates and stuff, and all this stuff is connected. It's not arbitrary. It's, it's historical. Um, one doesn't want to obsess on imaginary causality but but these things are facts you know and those people the fucking people that that um drove fascism those voices have not gone away they are you know they're with us 
And um, this is this is what I think is disturbing because because people have been indoctrinated to think somehow um, this stuff doesn't exist. That that I mean, a woman said to me the other day I was complaining about COVID. She said, "Oh well, you know, the the coronavirus is the worst thing we've had since the Spanish flu, and the government's doing the best they can to stop the spread of it." And I thought, right, well, so, but, you know, this, this is, this is what people are taught if they watch the evening news. I mean, this is, this is what they learn. And people right. call you crazy. And all the smug liberals I know uh, in Los Angeles um, um, chuckle and chortle and think, oh, no, you know, there's conspiracy theory, all of them. And, and you think, but it's just, but these are historical facts. You know, the U.S. did kill all the Black Panthers. You know, the FBI and CIA have done all these things. Oscar Romero was killed. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Um, but, but I think largely there's a kind of amnesia about this stuff. So, yeah, and there's a, it, it, there's amnesia, but there's also just plain damn ignorance and willful ignorance. So, if you recommend to people, hey, look. Why don't you read this book? They won't read it. They no. they refuse to read it. They, they might look at it and skim it, but that's about it. Because most people don't really have the wherewithal anymore to concentrate enough to go from chapter one to chapter two or from page three to four. They just they right. just they, they they've lost that. But people yeah. do not. Yeah, I mean history. Is, 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 is like a lost topic for people. Historical amnesia, call it what you want, but there's a vast uh, ignorance and a refusal to look at this stuff. I, to his credit, I got an email from a guy I went to high school with who um, uh, he was referring to my, my book that's coming out now. And he said, well, is, is it a lot of stuff like about those assassinations and Kennedy and and I said, well, no, there are there are aspects of that, yeah, sure, uh, but it's not just that. It's about silence. It's about nature. It's about speed. It's about sexuality. It's about masculinity. It's about a lot of stuff. And you know, he 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 then wrote another article, uh, email to me, and he said, well, you know, this is this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. This, the government didn't kill JFK, the government didn't kill Malcolm X, the government didn't kill Martin Luther King, the government didn't kill Bobby Kennedy, and that's it. Right. And so at least I started a dialogue with him and I said, look, yeah. read yeah. this book, get this book, and, and the book in question was JFK and the Unspeakable by Jim Douglas, which is the best book on the Kennedy assassination. Just read it slowly and then let's have a dialogue, and then let's talk some more. And he, yeah. to his great credit, he ordered the book and he's reading it. So sometimes yeah, you can get people that's to-, huge. to yeah, That's huge. I mean, yeah. I, I, if people will read what I ask them to read, you know, I'll read what they tell me to read, and I do. Um, but if they'll read it, that's fine. I don't expect them to accept it right away. It might take 10 years, you know? Right, I, right. I mean, I, stupid at one time too i mean you know it takes time 
And we live in a society in which one is bombarded with um, propaganda 24-7. It, it, it's extraordinary. Um, I mean, Trump gave a speech. I found this greatly amusing, actually. Trump gave a speech um, where he singled out Howard Zinn for condemnation. We must oh, stop. We must stop influences like Howard Zinn. And I thought, well, what a, you know, this was, a, Howard Zinn must, you know, in his grave, take this as, as a great tribute. You know, he made Donald Trump's speech. Um, uh, and, and that's something. He frightened somebody in that administration. Yeah, and I'm sure Trump never read a, a word of Howard Zinn. Not a fucking he, word. He, he just not heard a, him. Not a syllable. No, I mean, you know, we're dealing with this is this is, you know, we could launch into a long topic because people sometimes say, oh, yeah, no, Trump's ignorant and stuff. But, you know, and and um, <clears throat> but Obama was so smart. I said, well, you know, he was cunning like a snake. Yeah, he was he was he had brains and they you know, but they say and, you know, people like Jim Mattis and Mike Pompeo make the decisions. They're very educated, smart people. And I say, no, no. Mike Pompeo is a rube, you know, he, he's a guy who went to Bible class at his Kansas, you know, preparatory school and got converted to dominionism. And, um, and he's a bloated, um, self-aggrandizing fool. He's not an intellect. Um, and, and people have to stop assuming that success or positions of prominence equate to intelligence, you know. Because you get that all the time with Bill Gates. And I said, well, Bill Gates didn't invent him. Bill Gates stole a lot of shit and, and he's very rich. And so he makes himself visible. Um, he's not a doctor. He's not medically trained. He doesn't know anything. He just owns a lot of things. Um, and, and, but this is, you know, but this is, has historically been an American tendency, you know, to, 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 valorize, um, to valorize wealth. Anyway. You know, when, when I read your um, articles on your website, I always think, my goodness, uh, there is an intellectual left in the world. And uh, no, no, I, I do. In, in intellectual in the best sense of that word, in the old fashioned sense of the word, uh, where someone is, is reading and thinking and engaging and presenting and stimulating people to, to, to think about life and art and politics and, and, and everything. And uh, that's the thing I really appreciate about you because it's a very rare quality. Well, it's certainly, you know, I mean, I think you and I became pals on, on um, the internet because you know, we were kind of writing similar themes, but also I went, oh, this is somebody who has read a lot and knows these people and his references are, you know, erudite and, and appropriate and this is great. Um, and, you know, I wanted to comment just briefly before we wrap up that, that um, because people, you should get your book. And um, the chapter on Kevin Love, I found very moving actually, because um, you mentioned masculinity a moment ago. Um, that's a yeah. terrific, that's a terrific essay on um, on masculinity, on sports, on um, sort of the modern condition. I think for men uh, in in America.
America. It's not a small topic. Um, and the chapter on Frank Serpico is a, is a, a kind of addendum to that in a sense, you know. Um, and, and the chapter on Hillary Clinton was splendid, I have to say. I laughed out loud all through that, um, as tragic as it was. Um, but okay, I think probably we're, we should wrap up here, but um, you know, we should also do it again whenever you want. Um, it's, you know, this is what podcasts are for, to sit and chat. Um, Ed Curtin's book is, uh, it's Seeking Truth in a Country of Lies. Is that the title? Yes, yes. Clar Clarity Press. Clarity Press. Um, Ed Curtin, C-U-R-T-I-N. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, it's, a, it's a marvelous book. And I want to thank uh, Ed for doing this. I want to thank Jack Littman, always the... Um, nothing of aesthetic resistance, I swear, would be getting done if it weren't for Jack Litton's tireless um, and, and profitless work on uh, behalf of our group. So, um, Ed, I really do hope you come back and, and we can do more of this because it, it's fun. And um, that's it, I think. Um, take care in the Berkshires and... Uh, you know, to everybody else, um, this will be up soon. I guess you'll know that when it's up. All right. Well, um, thank you, John. My pleasure, man. It's Take a great, care. great conversation with you. Love yeah. you. Bye. I loved it. Thank you so much. We'll talk again. Okay. Okay. Adios. Bye. Adios. <laughs>